you have your Bible with you this morning or you're faster than your neighbor, grab the nearest Bible and turn with me in it to Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. I realize that the whole of Scripture is God's spoken word and it should always cause us to tremble, but I feel that especially this morning, considering these verses from Romans chapter 6. I'm going I'm to go ahead and pray to get started now as, before we consider these words. Would you pray with me? Father, we cry out this morning in the midst of uh, cynicism, potentially, discouragement, frustration, or excitement and elation and distraction. Father, we cry out to you in the midst of good things and hard things, of certainties and uncertainties, of clear signs of your faithfulness, and of questions that still remain. In all of it, we cry out to you this morning to send out your light and your truth, that they would lead us, that they would take us to the place where you dwell, to the holy place, that through your word this morning, as we've already sung, we would see you and hear you clearly, and that by the work of your spirit through it, we would be changed. In your name, Jesus, we pray all of this. Amen. This week I heard an interview with uh, hip-hop artist Lecrae, I'm talking about the whole of his career and just reflecting on where he's come from and where he's heading and where he is now. In the midst of all of that, he told a story about his first visit to France. He's done well for himself, always wanted to go to France, was excited to see the architecture, was excited excited to see the museums, and was especially excited to eat French food because he grew up hearing about it all his life. It was that great unknown that was held out before him that he was seeking after. Finally, he had the chance to go to Paris, and he took it. He jumped at the chance. He was actually visiting some missionary, a missionary family there. And before he connected with them, he got off the plane, and he began to wander around Paris. And he realized something. He didn't know a lick of French. <laughs> he, you see, he had gotten there excited to eat the food, but the only place he could find that he could even partially communicate in was McDonald's. Now I'm as big a fan of McDonald's as the next guy, and I mean that honestly, so no slight to anybody here in your tastes. But it wasn't the French food that he was anticipating. He couldn't communicate, he couldn't speak the language, and he found himself stuck. That image has stuck with me this week as I considered these words before us. I wonder if the Christian life for us sometimes feels like a lot of expectation, a lot of hope, and a lot of dream about what we will become mixed with the reality of what we are yet now and what life is for us now and we feel stuck. And I wonder if part of, the, part of our problem isn't a problem of language, a problem of knowing the words to communicate. Now, when I say that, hear me, I'm not trying to say that the Bible or that Christianity is anyway some sort of magic words that if you say the right words, all will be better. But words shape how we think, they shape how we, can, how we speak, they shape how we live, they shape what we love. And it's in that reality that I want to consider God's word for us this morning and ask him to give us the language to communicate what it is to live the Christian life faithfully. As we approach Romans 6, know that the first part of the book of Romans, Romans begins the first three, roughly three chapters about the condition in which humanity finds itself. Not just a little off course, not just a little misguided, not just problem areas, but as a whole, running away from our Creator, choosing to worship everything but Him, the one for whom we were made to know, the one whom we were made to know and whom we were made to worship. We have chosen to worship everything but Him. 
all alike are under this problem, this, this sin that exists in this world that has existed since Adam and Eve. We were made in the image of God, and yet we run and hide from that image and worship everything except our Creator. And as the, as the Romans unfolds, he begins to say, but there is yet hope, not because of anything that resides in us, but because of God and what He provided in the revealing of His righteousness through His Son. And by believing, by faith, we can be restored to Him. We can be brought into a relationship with Him whereby we are no longer His enemies. But out of great love for us, He sent His Son to die for us. And then we get to chapter 6. And Paul begins to ask, to ask, help us ask the question, so what? We are, as Scripture would call it, we are justified. We are restored in relationship with God. But so what? So I'm going to read for us from Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1 through verse 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to, go, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. The grass withers, the flower fades. May God add to this the reading of His Word abundantly now. Let's consider these words. Notice in verse 1, we'll jump right in. Notice in verse 1, Paul begins with a question. It's a technique that he uses often in his writings, especially in the book of Romans. You see, Paul will anticipate the questions that might arise, like any good teacher will. He, He anticipates what his readers might be thinking. He's writing to people that he has not met yet, but he loves dearly. And he says early in the book that he longs to be with them. So he's got them in mind as he writes. And his question at this point is simply this. Are we to continue in sin so that grace might abound? Now let's be honest about something. Even if this is your first moment in a church this morning, even if the Bible is a relatively unfamiliar book to you, I suspect you know enough about Christianity to know that sin is generally in the category of bad, at least according to the church. You you may disagree with that, but at least according to the church, I think we could all be in agreement that sin is in the category of something that would be bad, that we would not want to continue in. And so we hear this strange question at the beginning of chapter 6. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? 
Paul asks this because of what he said a few verses earlier at the end of chapter 5. In talking about how, how death came into the world through Adam and how Christ brings life, Christ is the second Adam, the one who would follow after and perfect what Adam and his, his wife destroyed. He says this in verse 20 of chapter 5, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. He talks about God giving the law, and, and that's what revealed to us that we are flawed in very stark, very black and white kinds of terms. And so this question that he asks in 6.1 6, comes from a place of a logical conclusion. The logic goes something like this. If more sin leads to more grace, why not keep in sin? Why, in fact, why not sin even more? Because it will always lead to more grace, would be the assumption. I'm not sure that any of us are asking that question today. But I know, because I know my own heart, I know that we're asking questions like it. You see, as I said, according to Romans, believers in Jesus are justified by grace. They are made right with God. By faith, we are justified and have hope. He says in, Romans, in chapter 5, we have peace with God all because Christ died for us. There's nothing that we could do. In fact, the law tells us everything that we cannot do. We are justified, though. We have been set free, all based on God's love and God's work for us. And yet, sin persists in this life for us. So then what? We look at our lives, we hear Scripture tell us that we've been, we've been set free. We're at peace with God. And yet the reality of our lives seem to tell us something else. What do we do? Sometimes we try harder. Sometimes we feel guiltier as if that would be enough. Sometimes we give up altogether and say, it doesn't really matter. That's how we ask that question. Because all those are ways of asking the question, why not remain in sin? Because grace will just continue to abound all the more. In many ways, though, chapters 6 through 8 are, are an extended answer to that question. But this morning, I want us to continue, to, or to want us to look at the starting point in verses 1 to 14. Paul's immediate response in verse, at the beginning of verse 2 is simply this By no means. It's stark, it's clear. Paul is acknowledging that there is an absurdity, absurdity to that thought, even though it sounds like a logical conclusion. But as we hear him speak in these first few verses, don't hear him scolding you. Don't hear him shaking his finger at you, trying, how could you do this? How could you keep messing up? Don't hear your passive-aggressive relative saying something like, if you would love me, you would just... That's not what's happening here. The answer this morning to that question and Paul's approach really begins in chapter, in chapter 6, verse 3. Again, he actually asks another question. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. What Paul is doing here is he's talking about the reality of union with Christ. It's the label that theologians have given this reality, that, that God's people through faith are united with Christ. We see it in verse 5 where he talks about we have been united with him. It comes in in verse 3 when he talks about into Christ Jesus. Or in verse 11 where he says simply, he uses the phrase, in Christ. 
It's, it's the New Testament in particular. It's Paul's favorite way to talk about what it is to be a Christian. In fact, he doesn't use the word Christian. More often than not, he talks about you who are in Christ. The doctrine is this. At the heart of what it means to be a Christian is to be bound up with who Jesus is. To be so connected with him that what is true of him is automatically, by declaration, true of us as God's people. One writer says it this way, we are in Christ and Christ is in us. And so throughout this passage, what you hear him say is, if this is true of Jesus, this is true of us. If, Je- if this is true of Jesus, this is true of us. It's scary how repetitive it is even in these 14 verses. But what I want you to hear is why he does this and why this means anything for us. You see, the gospel is not merely believing in forgiveness or merely believing in the reality of heaven. Those, those two things are vital among with many other things. But it is believing in Jesus as he is offered to us, as he offers himself to us in completion, in fullness. And what Paul does in chapter 6 is he begins for us, as I want to do this morning, he begins to lay out things that this, about this union that we need to know in order to face this question about remaining in sin. That you and I need to know about what it is to face our sin. Now, given my habit of procrastination, I didn't get an outline in your bulletin before in time for the printing, so I apologize for that. But I want you to hear three basic thoughts. If you're a note taker, this is where we're heading this morning. Three basic things that this doctrine of union tells us here in chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. They're simply this. The believer is united with Christ in his death. The believer is united with Christ in his life. And the believer is united with Christ in her daily struggle. That's where we're going this morning. Let's consider these things. First of all, the believer is united with Christ in his death. Paul's explanation begins with the statement that being baptized into Christ, as I've already read in verse 3, means being baptized into his death. Now let's be careful. Paul is using baptized in a loaded kind of way. What I mean by that is he's not just talking about getting wet. As if to say we had any power to manipulate the work of God simply by sprinkling water or dunking somebody in a tub of water as if that would affect anyone's salvation. Paul has made it abundantly clear this po- up to this point in the, in the book of Romans that there's nothing that we can do to do that. When he speaks of being baptized here, what he's talking about is the reality that stands behind the act of baptism. We use the language of it, that it is a sign and a seal. We get that actually from Romans chapter 4, where Paul talks about circumcision in the same way. What he's describing here is he's describing our baptism to point us to the reality of this being united with Christ. In particular, in verse 3, of being united with Christ in his death. Look at verse 8 and see how he, explains, how he describes it there. He says, if we have died with Christ. That's this reality of what, what is true of Jesus is true of the Christian, is true of the believer. What has happened to Jesus has, by an effect, happened to us. In this case, we have died with Christ. Now notice two things about this. As Paul unfolds this beginning in verse 4, what he, what, one of the things he does is he speaks to the purpose of this happening. Look with me at verse 4. He says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We have to know that death is never the end of the story. That there is purpose behind the death of Christ. 
And it is that you and I might walk in this newness of life. That there would be a new reality to who we are, to how we see ourselves, to how we see our family members, to how we see our neighbors, to how we see the very world and all of its flaws and cracks and brokenness and sin. That we would see and live differently. We do not consider Christ's death apart from his resurrection. But as the passage continues, he not only speaks of the purpose behind the death, but he also speaks of the power that is destroyed as a result of this death. And this is what is so vital for us to see. Look at verses 6 and 7, how he explains this. He says in verse 6, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Do you hear the power that, is, that has been set aside? The power that has been defeated? We, we see it in, in shorthand in verses 10 and 11 where he talks, talks about simply being dead to sin. He's talking about the conquering of our greatest enemy. Sin and death itself has been defeated because Jesus himself died in our place. And his victory over death is attributed to all who would receive him all who would believe in his name, all who would trust in him. The purpose of this death lies far beyond simply death. And the power that is defeated is what we needed to be defeated as our greatest enemy. In the fall of 2001, I think I've got the year correct, I got home from a church event and I noticed something about my heart rate was, was going a little fast. And I, I was kind of the coolest thing I'd ever experienced in my life. My heart rate was fast. I could, it was one of those moments where I could... I could almost feel and hear my heart beating. So, of course, as a you know, fascinated guy, I went down to, to downstairs to see my wife. I said, Tricia, check this out. I can hear my heartbeat. My wife was not impressed. She was correctly worried. And we took, she rushed me off to the ER. We found out that after a few hours of testing that I had an overactive thyroid. And the thyroid affects a whole bunch of stuff in your body, including your heart rate. It had somehow... Got, got out of alignment and, and began to caught and cause my heart to start racing, which it did for a few days until it was corrected through medication. And treating it was, was really easy. It wasn't a, it wasn't, it, I probably should have been more scared than I was, but it wasn't a big deal. I just took some medication. And for a while, that did the trick until I started to experience some side effects from the medication. So we got off the medication for a little while. Then we started to notice, okay, don't, John doesn't quite feel right. Let's get back on the medication. And it was, everything was back into place. The problem was that my thyroid began to adapt to the medication. So you have to tweak it and change it and kind of get it just right and keep it going as long as you can until you have to change it again. Eventually, my doctor said, John, we just need to stop messing around with this. We just need to kill the thing. And so that's what we did. And I took a radioactive iodine pill and had to be sequestered from my family in the basement for a while and caught up on some, some Hulu shows for a few days because I had nothing else to do at that point in my life. Um, and my thyroid was dead. It was all gone. And the, what you do then is you take supplements which are far easier to manage and to take care of. It had to be killed because, it was try, it, because managing it wasn't enough. As we think about the purpose and the power of Christ's death, I wonder if some of us, many of us, are trying to manage our sins. If we're trying to keep them just enough under control not realizing that our sinfulness may be adapting to our methods and getting harder to control without us realizing it. But hear me say this morning very clearly, the message here is not, you have to take care of this. 
The message of Romans 6 and, the, and of the whole of the New Testament is, is, is very clearly this. This has been taken care of for you because sin has been defeated because Christ died and it, you are no longer a slave to that sin. It no longer has power over you like, like it once did. It has to be killed. And Jesus already did. And, and, but if you, you may be thinking to yourself, but I remember something somewhere else where we're instructed to put sin to death. Yes, in Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, the misdeeds of the body. Paul says that in chapter 3 because in chapter 2 he's already said, you've died and risen again with Christ. Therefore, put this to death. Because Christ has already conquered, has already defeated sin. The power has been taken away from it. Now you can put these things to death that still linger in your life. It's the pattern of Scripture. We don't kill anything by ourselves. Christ has conquered it for us. But I want to be careful to also say this. It's vital for you and me to remember the purpose of Christ's death extends far beyond death itself. It's easy for us to think of, of the Christian faith as simply this. I mess up, God forgives me. I mess up, God forgives me. I mess up, God forgives me. You are not called simply to live in that place. The death of Christ conquers sin in your life. Forgiveness is assured because of the shed blood of Jesus. Without question, that is true. And yet there's so much more set before us. That's why the second thing that we want to look at this morning is that the believer is united with Christ in his life. Again, think of this life both in terms of purpose and of power. Look again at, verse, at, chapter, at chapter 6, verse 4. Um, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In verses 10 and 11, this is described as living to God after Jesus' pattern of living before God. We see something similar being, being called alive to God in verse 13. You see, the purpose of being united to Christ is, is actually is that, to live a new life. To not live the life of, of slavery, to not live the life of being in chains, to not live the life of having to obey your desires, as, he's, as we're going to talk about in just a moment, but to live differently, to be fully alive. But notice the, the nature of the power that is at work here. Look at verses 8 through 10. He begins to say this, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. He will never die again. Death no longer has any control over Him because He has defeated death. And we know that He has defeated death because He has risen from the dead. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul speaks of this kind of power. He speaks about what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might. You see, that power by which God the Father raised God the Son from the dead is the power that is at work within the people of God who receive it by faith because Christ has paved the way for us. He has assured His victory by dying in our place, and rising from the dead and ascending to the right hand of the Father, being seated at the right hand of God for all of eternity until He returns. The hope that we have is that that new life power that, he, that is His, by union with Him, is declared to be 
ours. Paul sets before us not only the reality of death destroying the power, but of the new life giving new power. And that's exactly where we need. This summer on vacation, we got to my folks' house at one point. Got, we were leaving church, going to fill up the van with gas, got to the gas station, and the van wouldn't start. Somebody graciously from my parents' church came in and jump-started us. We got to the O'Reilly's and they tested it and they said, your alternator's bad. When the alternator's bad, the car doesn't go. Simple as that. And so by, my dad, by his kindness and grace, helped me fix the alternator that afternoon. It took a lot longer than we expected, as these things usually do. But the reality is the true test of having fixed the alternator was not simply being able to start the car, the van again in my parents, in the, on the street in, my, in front of my parents' house. You see, the van wasn't made to idle. The van was made to drive and take us somewhere. And it was only after driving around town for a while and then coming back and turning the car off and starting again to realize, hey, we have a new alternator. The alternator works. We fixed it. That's what the intention was. That's what the van is for. It is intended to drive. The Christian life is made to do far more than just idling in the driveway. Now, I'm not here to tell you that you're supposed to do something radical right now, today, when you get home from church. I'm not, I'm not telling you you're supposed, that you're supposed to, by saying, talking about not idling, that you're supposed to sell everything you own and move to some foreign country that you've never even heard of by picking a dot on a map when you get home from church today. That's not what I'm calling you to. But what I want you to know is that you were called to do more than sit and idle. You were called, you were being empowered. The purpose of the work of Christ is such that you would live a different life. Ephesians chapter 2, a verse that may be known to, to many of us. We are his workmanship, Paul writes, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. What God is about doing in your life as a Christian is taking you somewhere. For some of you, that may look like leaps and bounds of change over the course of the next five years. For others of you, it may feel like a slow crawl. But know that God is still has set out good works for you beforehand, that you should walk in them. He is leading you through that. He is empowering you to live differently. That is the work that He tells us that He is doing in us. It's what He has purposed. And it's what He is empowering us to do. Good works may mean simple things like learning to speak kindly to your enemies, which may live in the same house as you, or you may have grown up in their home. And the thought of speaking kind words to someone that has hurt you deeply scares you to death. But Paul is telling us there is power in the resurrected Christ that is yours by faith in union with him. I'm not promising that those relationships will ever be fixed fully in this life. But what I'm telling you is that God is leading you to a place of changing you through this process. There is purpose and there is power. So we get to verse 11. We get to the third point and it's simply this. The believer is united with Christ in his daily struggle. Read verse 11 really carefully with me, if you would. Take a look at what it says. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You are not commanded to become dead to sin and alive to God, as, even if, as if you could. You are, not, you are not called to believe something to be true in order to make it true. 
You see, based on verses 1 to 10, Paul is telling us repeatedly, this has happened, it is true of Jesus, and by faith it is true of you. Therefore, in verse, verse 11, consider yourselves dead to sin. Embrace what is true about you because it is true about Jesus. Consider what is already true of you. And then look at verses 12 and 14. Paul tells us you have a new king. In verse 12, he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And in verse 14, For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. You know what Paul is saying in those two verses? He's saying this, Don't let sin be your king any longer because it is no longer Lord over your life. The command is to not let it be king The reality is verse 14, for it is no longer Lord over your life because Jesus has defeated it and has risen from the dead and has given you new life and is calling you to new life. You need to know that sin is no longer in charge of your life if you're a Christian. But not only do you have a new king, but you're a citizen of a new kingdom. Look look again at verse 13 with me. He gets a little specific here. He says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Paul is describing a way of life here. That is is direct as saying this sanctification, this this process of being made more like Jesus. that, That God is working out in his people through what we're talking about today. It is about all of you. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that being made more like Christ is simply a matter of what's happening inside you and has nothing to do with the outward physical world. God made the world and called it good. We wrecked it. God is restoring it and will one day restore it fully. Part of your being human is that you have a physical body and a soul. It's what Paul says um, in, uh, I'm going to lose it. Oh, there it is in verse 12. Notice how he says it there. He says, do not let therefore sin reign in your mortal body in your, in your body, in your physical body, to, to make you obey its passions. Paul is acknowledging that the Christian life, that, that fighting against sin is an outward thing and an inward thing. It begins with dealing with our passions, our desires, our lusts. But it also has everything to do with the outward manifestation of those things in our body. He's calling us to live differently, all of us. If you remember from the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, there's a point at which Pippin, one of the young hobbits, he meets the father of Boromir, the, the power-hungry human who at one point saved Pippin's life and another hobbit's. Out of, a, out of a feeling of obligation, when Pippin meets Denethor, Boromir's father, the, the little hobbit says to this great king, he says, little service, no doubt, will so great a lord of men think to find in a hobbit. Yet such as it is, I will offer it in payment of my debt. The debt being what he owes for his life being saved by the son who was killed. And then Pippin draws his sword and he lays it down at Denethor, the king's feet. Later on, Gandalf the Wise, one of the heroes of the story, um, is talking with Pippin about Denethor, who's a great, who tells him he's a great man clouded by a desire for power. And he's craftier than what he appears. And then Gandalf says this to Pippin, you are now sworn to his service. You were at his command and he will not forget. Pippin, out of obligation, lays his sword down at the feet of Denethor to say, my sword is now your sword. Command me to use this weapon as you will. 
At whose feet do you lay down your sword today? Where are you pledging your allegiance? What Paul's going to say in the next section is that there's no room for neutrality here. We don't stop at saying, well, it's no longer, I'm no longer a slave to sin, and just stay there. The teaching of Scripture is we're a slave to sin or we're a slave to righteousness. And the command, the call of, this, of the, the end of this section is to, to ask us to consider what are, we, what are we doing with the members of our body? Where are we, who are we pledging them to? Who are we setting them before and say, use this? Because in effect, that's what we're doing. We're setting our tongue before sin to obey our desires when we gossip and malign people's reputation to make us look better and to get ahead. Our hands, when we fudge the books a little bit to make things look a little bit better. Our feet, when we head to places that we have no, 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 no need to be in and nothing good comes from. Sin is no longer your king, though. Know that this morning. You have a new king, and you're a citizen of a new kingdom. Don't put a dead guy on the throne and, and worship him. Sin has been defeated. You have a new king. So what should we say then? Are we, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In many ways, Paul answer, Paul's answer is really simple. I wrestled with this a lot this week because I want to understand the motivation. I want to understand why I should do this. And I'm not sure that Paul actually gets at that a whole lot in these 14 verses. What Paul actually does beautifully is says, behold your king. Look at who he is, look at what he's done, and look at what he's done for you, and look at where you are as a result. You see, for us to remain in sin is simply not consistent with the purpose of Christ's death. It's not consistent with the power that he defeats in death. It's not consistent with the purpose of his life. It's not consistent with the power that he gives us in life. It's not consistent with his rule over our lives as our king. And it's not consistent with what what daily life looks like for us to live in his kingdom. It's simply not consistent. And so can we together, as as a gathered people of God, look to our King this morning and look to our King with each new day and simply behold Him and hear Him say, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies and spend the rest of our lives doing that, embracing this reality that says, my enemy has been defeated. That work is done. And to take up our instruments, to take the members of our bodies and offer them before our true king as citizens of, our king, of his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, even for some here who have been, who have known you for decades, the reality is we often feel like we're just getting started. Father, there are depths to mine in your word, even in a few verses, that we would take hours upon hours and days upon days to consider. Our prayer now is that by the work of your Spirit, you would add to this the reading of your word. Add to it, multiply it, change us, we ask, Father. Remind us that we have been set free. In the name of Jesus, we pray all of this. Amen.